All right, good morning. Oh, go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to have you stand in just a few moments, but first I want to start with a question. Is there such a thing as a sure and certain source of truth? Good answer. All right. Alan Bloom, in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, said every professor can be certain that almost every student entering a university holds the view that truth is relative, up for grabs, shifting, moving target. Depends on what's true for you and all that. And if that idea is true, then you can't distinguish good from bad or truth from error. It becomes an exercise in futility. But I'm here to declare to you today what you have already agreed to, that there is an absolute, sure, and certain source of truth, and it happens to be none other than the written Word of God. The written Word of God. It's totally trustworthy, it is powerful, it is authoritative, it is supreme and sufficient, and I'm here to say that God has revealed himself in his supreme and sufficient word. God has spoken truth we need. Now, um, I'm pretty excited about this, but over the next five weeks, we are going to be looking at five pillars of the Christian faith known as the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Sola is Latin for alone or only. Today we're looking at sola scriptura, scripture alone. We'll go on to look at grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, God's glory alone. Today we're kicking this series off with sola scriptura. We will look at the supremacy and the sufficiency of scripture. We will look at the problems it solves and then the implications upon our lives. So if you're able, please stand with me. I'm going to read the word. Read 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. It's the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be com competent, equipped for every good work. And Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes today, that we would see wonderful things in your word. Have your way with us, Lord, for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat there. So you may wonder... You know, why the five solas and why now? I've got three reasons for it. I'll just briefly go through them really quickly. The first reason is because that 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. When God moved in the hearts of believers uh, to call the church back to biblical faith. Rescuing it from uh, the Roman Catholic Church that had gone off the rails and trusted in man-made ideas rather than the word of God. So that's the first reason. It's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year. It makes sense. And, and, and interestingly about that, many today are, are unaware of the roots of the Reformation. Many professing believers have no idea what we're talking about, and many hold to some of the same errors that were being protested. That's shocking. 
So there's much for us to, go, to gain in going back to historic Christian faith and ensuring that we are aligned with it. Uh, the second reason is really just the Protestant Reformation as a whole. And I'll just go over a couple things just so you can see what was going on and, and why it happened. And I'm indebted to Terry Johnson for most of this introduction to the Reformation. I wish I had written it myself, but he did. Uh, I did do some light editing, okay? Uh, October 31st, 1517, an Augustinian monk nailed to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg 95 theses or complaints against the abuses in the church of his day. It was a call to reform. It was a call to, to change their ways, and the complaints were quickly copied and distributed uh, first throughout Germany and then throughout all of Europe, and unwittingly, Martin Luther, who lived from 1483 to 1546, had started a, a revolution that we know of as the Protestant Reformation that would alter the face of Western civilization and through it the world. It's staggering uh, the changes that were brought about socially. Uh, the Reformation broke down the wall between the sacred and the secular, leading to a fresh appreciation uh, for things like marriage and family life and the ordinary tasks of life. Politically, it led to the recognition of the essential equality among all people, uh, recognition of basic human rights, and the creation of representative forms of government. Economically, it promoted a free market economics and gave workers a new sense of dignity in their work, in their labors. Educationally, it gave impetus to universal literacy as the common people learned to read the Bible for themselves. So the Reformation led to freedom. It was personal and political and economic and intellectual. And as we know, with freedom comes responsibility. And we don't always steward our responsibilities responsibly. But it had a profound effect on, on all aspects of society. But its main impact was religious. And it brought needed reforms to the church. And just think of some of these things that you might be taking for granted. How about congregational singing? Do you love congregational singing? Well, thank the reformers for reviving it. Do you believe the Bible should be read in the language of the people? Then thank Martin Luther and his German Bible for paving the way for a host of new translations of the Hebrew and the Greek scriptures into the vernacular. Is your soul fed by preaching? Then thank the reformers for restoring the preached word to its central place in the life of the people of God. And this is perfect because today we are uh, taking communion, the bread and the cup. But do you think that communion should be taken in both kinds, the bread and the cup? If so, thank Martin Luther for restoring the cup to the people. Do you believe in the ministry of every member of the church? Thank the reformers for emphasizing it. And do you know the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? If so, thank Martin Luther and the Reformers for rescuing the answer from, from the medieval church that had enslaved it and hidden it from people. You got people like Martin Luther as well as Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin and John Knox and other Reformers that endeavored to restore the church to its biblical purity. So we should be very thankful that God moved in their hearts. Be thankful for many of their lives that were given for the freedoms we now enjoy. Their faith was called an evangelical faith because like the early church before them, they stressed the evangel, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And the five cries of sola, or alone, or only, uh, served as a rally cry for that generation. And the five solas represent the core commitments of classic Protestantism, of modern evangelicalism, and basic biblical Christianity. So we affirm them, and, and we're going to review them not as a historical exercise. This is not a history lesson, folks. This is so that we would reaffirm the central commitments of the Christian faith, because the solas helped people of that day uncover the heart of the gospel and what it means to be a Christian, and they can do the same things for us today. Because a lot of that has been blurred and muddied as the years have passed. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, God's glory alone, Christ alone. So you have, you know, 1517 as a historical marker for the five solas, but these gospel gems were clearly evident to the apostles in the first century. They are truths deeply anchored in the Bible, and it is on these five solas that the reformers stood, and on them we continue to stand today. So it's good for us to look at them. And I would just say the last reason we should do this is because there is a certain drift that has taken place in our time. Again, the five solos are not for history. They're for living life more biblically and appropriately. They're, they're for recovering biblical Christianity. And God has moved in, 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 uh, amongst groups of people as the years have gone on, to, to restate and to reaffirm many of the things that sometimes get lost. In 1996, uh, the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals wrote what is known as the Cambridge Declaration. This is one of the things they said. Today, the light of the Reformation has been significantly dimmed. The consequence is that the word evangelical has become so inclusive as to have lost its meaning. We face the peril of losing the unity it has taken centuries to achieve. Because of this crisis and because of our love of Christ, his gospel and his church, we endeavor to assert anew our commitment to the central truths of the Reformation and of historic evangelicalism. These truths we affirm not because of their role in our traditions, but because we believe that they are central to the Bible. So the big idea... Of the five solas, it's great the way it works out. You just take them and put them together in a sentence. If you've ever received an email from me, you know that part of my signature line has these five solas in it. Just say it this way. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. There you have it. And it's important to remember, just like for us to remember, it's, it's important to remember, you, sometimes you look back and you think, wow, those people must have been you know, really good or, or really bad, and we have a tendency to um, think too highly or too lowly of people. And, and just remember this. Any believer that God uses for his sovereign purposes is sinful and saved by grace alone. Now, the Protestant reformers uh, were flawed and sinful people. You can read all about their flaws and their sins. Uh, but what, what it does is it highlights how necessary the main ideas of the Reformation really are. That foundational to a biblical understanding of the gospel is that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Nothing that you merited, nothing that you worked for, it's all the work of God. In fact, one of the things the Cambridge Declaration said was, wherever in the church... Biblical authority has been lost. 
Christ has been displaced, the gospel has been distorted, or faith has been perverted, it has always been for one reason. Our interests have displaced God's. We are doing his work in our way. So today we're looking at um, sola scriptura, scripture alone, and, and the idea God has revealed himself in his supreme and sufficient word. There are two points today. His word is supreme. His word is sufficient. He has given and spoken truth we need. It is supreme. It is overall. It is sufficient. It is all we need. When we talk about sola scriptura, we are saying this has to do with the supreme sufficiency of scripture as our authority in all spiritual matters. The reformers rightly declared that scripture was the only rule for faith and practice. What you believe and then the actions upon which you build what you say you believe, the actions that outflow that. Sola scriptura means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught in the Bible. It's as simple as that. God has revealed himself in a supreme and sufficient word. He has spoken supreme and sufficient truth that we need. So the first thing we'll do is look at Scripture's supremacy, how supreme Scripture is. Now we're in 2 Timothy 3. We're looking at two verses today. I'm going to give you a little bit of a background here. Chapter 2 in 2 Timothy ended with Paul uh, telling Timothy to continue on in Christ and what he had learned from the teaching of God's word. And then he gives two reasons why Timothy should be encouraged to do that. The first reason is in 2 Timothy 3.14. It says, Knowing from whom you have learned it. As for you, continue in what you have learned, having firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. Who did he learn it from? He learned it from his grandmother Lois, his mother Eunice. They had instructed him in the Christian faith. And Paul himself had instructed him, whose teaching he had followed. So the first reason why Timothy should be encouraged to stay on in Christ and, and continue what he learned is that you got to remember who you learned it from. Secondly, that from childhood, from really almost from infancy, he had known the Holy Scriptures, which were able to make him wise for salvation through faith in Christ. That's in verse 15. See, Timothy had a solid knowledge of the, of the Word of God. Uh, he received it from his grandmother and his mother. He knew that the Scriptures were the inspired Word of God. So in the next few verses, what Paul does is he speaks of the immeasurable value of Scripture, how supreme it is and how sufficient it is. So he says in verse 16, all Scripture, which is the Old Testament and New Testament combined, all of it together, are given by inspiration of God. So we're talking now about the Bible's inspiration, we're talking about how supreme it is. It's from God. And there's the, the inspiration of God phrase, there's one word in Greek, uh, theopneustos, it literally means God breathed, or as the ESV puts it, breathed out by God. Literally, God spoke it. Um, inspiration, and it's good for us to remember this, only applies to scripture, not the writers. The, there were no inspired scripture writers, only inspired scripture, and the Bible, Paul is saying, is from God. So it has its origin and its content uh, to, uh, it owes that to the guidance and leading of the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.20 explains this a little more, which says, No prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
And it's, it's amazing how, how God has given us the word and what we have, when we, when we hold a Bible in our hands and just think for a moment about what we've got. We've got a, a unified whole that's made up of writings that would be humanly impossible to unify. You've got a library of 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, written in three languages over a period of 15 centuries by more than 40 different authors, all of whom were very different. You've got kings like David and Solomon. You've got uh, philosophers like the writer of Ecclesiastes. You've got poets like those who wrote the Psalms. You've got farmers like Amos. You've got statesmen like Daniel, priests like Ezekiel and Ezra, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, fishermen like Peter and John, scholars like Paul. But what happens is you, you, you take the Bible, and instead of this mixed bag of ideas and inconsistencies, the Bible has a wonderful unity, and you see from Genesis to Revelation, you've got this unfolding single theme of God's plan of redemption. And it's all unified. Now, if humans were going to do this, the outcome would be far different. So, for example, you just take um, some of the great writings from history, okay? Plato, Aristotle, Josephus, Dante, Shakespeare, and the like, and you put them in a single volume? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Here's what you've got, a series of disconnected ideas and contradictions. No unity, no theme holding them together. But the, the inspiration of the Bible is such that it's so supreme that it's from God and he unified what man could never unify. You also notice that God has preserved his word, that we still have it. You're, you're here today, you're, you're listening to the word being preached. You can read the word on your own because the inspiration of the Bible is also seen in its unique survival. Throughout history, it's been hated because it claims to be the word of God. And you've got emperors and dictators and totalitarian regimes attempting to destroy it by burning it and confiscating it and imprisoning and persecuting those who read it and, and preach it. And here it is with us, still with us, just as popular as ever. And the first recorded attack on Sola Scriptura was when the serpent asked, has God really said, calling into question the word of God, Carl Henry wrote a magnum opus of a book called God, Revelation, and Authority. And in it, he said this, the church throughout history has faced repeated attacks on the Bible from skeptics. But only in the 19th and 20th centuries has the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God's word been called into question, criticized, and abandoned by those within the body of Christ. That would be unthinkable to the reformers, yet this is the day in which we live. This is like Americans trashing America. Now, by the way, in our day, not only do the critics of the Bible parade in our culture, now they have climbed into the pulpits and are preaching, and they're sitting comfortably in churches, saying, you know, I don't really know if the Bible really is the word of God. The Bible is inspired, it is from God, therefore it is infallible and inerrant. You hear me say that a lot, right? It is infallible, it is inerrant, it is inspired. In other words, let me put it to you really simply, the Bible is from God, it is free from error, it is all true. It's from God, it's free from error, it's all true. 
the word of God comes to us from the mouth of God, the scripture must be all true. Jesus said it clearly, John 17, 17, thy word is what? Truth. Now the church makes errors, people make errors, you make errors, I make errors. Holy scripture does not make errors. And the doctrine of, of scripture's inerrancy and infallibility is an outflow of the doctrine of its inspiration. It's from God. The scriptures are from God. And they're true down to the individual letters of each particular word. And if they come to us from God, who is himself all true, they're free from error. God created the human authors, governed their development, superintended their circumstances. When they spoke or wrote, it was exactly what God wanted them to speak or write. We trust the scriptures because the Bible is inerrant. It contains no errors in the original manuscripts. We trust the scriptures because the Bible is infallible. It cannot fail to speak the truth. It contains no contradictions. Exactly what God wants us to have. Jesus said of the scriptures, John 10, 35, the scripture cannot be broken. All of its individual words are true. Back in 1978, a statement was put together by a bunch of believers called the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And let me just sum it up to you really quickly. Here's what this statement says. It's a long statement. Here's what it says. The Bible is really, really, really true. <laughs> One of the paragraphs says this. Holy Scripture being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his Spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. That Cambridge Declaration of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals that I mentioned that was written in 1996 says this we affirm the inerrant scripture to be the sole source of written divine revelation which alone can bind the conscience the bible alone teaches all that is necessary for our salvation from sin and is the standard by which all christian behavior must be measured when we say that the bible is inspired what we're saying is it is authoritative it is supreme because it's from god like Psalm 138, verse 2 says, you exalted above all things your name and your word. It's overall. It's binding. It's eternal. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower falls off. The word of our God stands forever. And as far as the biblical writers were concerned, what scripture says, God says. What scripture says, God says. God is so identified with his word that when scripture speaks, God speaks. Scriptures are called the oracles of God. It cannot be altered. Scripture alone is our highest and final authority. It is supreme. This is the point that Paul is making, the Holy Spirit is making through Paul, when you see the words, all Scripture is breathed out by God. So there's the first point. It is supreme. Now the second point is that it is sufficient. And there we'll look in the same verse and you'll see the word profitable. Okay, so the Bible is the inspired word of God. Now Paul's going to show how useful and how purposeful it is for Christians. Not only is scripture supreme, not only is it inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, it is also sufficient, profitable, literally useful, uh, beneficial, good, 
valuable, helpful, able to accomplish something. God has given us, in his written word, everything he intends for us to have, everything we need for life and godliness. And Paul said it is profitable, it is useful, it is helpful, it is beneficial for, first, teaching. Paul's telling Timothy, make good use of it as an indispensable instrument for teaching. And the first amazing thing you should think about is that God teaches you through the word. The other day I listened, uh, listened actually, to all of Psalm 119. It was beautiful. It is, it, is, it is sweeping in its scope. It's magnificent. It's all about the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 97 to 104 says this. Oh, how I love your law. Pouring your heart out to God. Oh, I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You wonder, should I read the Bible every day? Um, not if it's just a five-minute check off the list, but if you want to think about it all day long, yes. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. It is ever with me. You're, you're thinking about it. You're meditating on it. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I remember thinking that when I was in college. I became a believer, and I'm, I always had my Bible with me under my desk there at Long Beach State, and I remember thinking, I'm smarter than that professor. In a manner of speaking, I'm sure. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. you got to know it to keep it. I do not turn aside from your rules. You have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Honey is pretty sweet. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. You see that you're taught by the word of God. You're also rebuked. It's profitable for teaching and rebuke. The Bible is a very honest book. You know, someone asks you, how does this dress look? You might not be honest. Or do you, what did you think about what I wrote or what I said? You might not get an honest answer. The Bible will never lie to you. So you think about this. The faults and the failings of God's servants throughout the ages are on display for us, right where we can see them out in the display case of the word of God. Now, if mankind were to write the Bible, we would have told a very different story and painted ourselves in a very different light. We would have made ourselves look so much better than, than we're seen to be in Scripture. You read the Bible, and you've got to take the blinders off. You're under no illusions. You see yourself as you really are, and it's, isn't it painful? It's painful. The Word of God rebukes you, but, and you've got to take the rebuke to heart in repentance and confession, or you'll never know inner peace. You'll never... Make further progress in discipleship. Paul tells Timothy, rebuke those who fall into sin. Whenever the Bible is used to warn a fellow Christian, it should be done in the spirit of love, but it should be done. He says it's profitable for correction. It's profitable for, for training in righteousness as well. The Bible corrects your thinking realigns you to what is true, trains and instructs you in the way of righteousness, the path you're to follow if you want to grow in godliness and holiness. The psalmist said it this way, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. It's going to correct you, it's going to guide you, it's going to train you. I love Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verses 11 through 14, talk about the effects of the word of God upon the heart. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. 
The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're corrected by the word of God. You're equipped. You're equipped by the word of God. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And it says in verse 17, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Paul states the purpose to read and study the word of God. That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Man of God, that's a tech term for an official preacher of divine truth. It refers to Timothy and other pastors and elders who need to be equipped with the authority of Scripture to teach and lead God's people in the right way. This can also equally apply to all Christians. It applies to all of us. That we would be complete, that we would be capable of doing everything that we're called by God to do, and that we would be thoroughly equipped. That word is, is the word you use in those days for like a sailing vessel that was had every rigging. You would speak of it today as like a car that you buy that's fully loaded. It's got all the bells and whistles. That you have everything you need to be able to meet all the demands of, of, of godly service and, and righteous living before God and others. God's word is, is sufficient. We need to talk about, though, what, it, what sufficiency means and what it doesn't mean. So nobody gets the wrong idea here. It, it doesn't mean that the scriptures speak of everything there is to speak of. It doesn't mean that the, you know, the 500,000 to 600,000 words that are in the Bible communicate every single truth that could ever be known. It doesn't do that. It's not an exhaustive compendium of all knowledge. We do, by the way, we do not know everything that Jesus ever said, right? John's gospel says that. We don't know all the things he said. So it's not a claim that all truth of every kind is found in Scripture. The Scriptures do not speak of DNA structures or microbiology or rules of Chinese grammar or rocket science or trigonometry, which is, oh man, now you maybe have a flashback to high school. Whew, that was tough. Um, the Scriptures do not talk about ICBMs or the wisdom of tweeting at 2 in the morning or automatic transmissions or garbage disposals. Not in there. But what we do know is the scripture is a more sure word, as 2 Peter 1.3 says, standing above all other truth in its authority and certainty. That's what we know. Everything necessary, everything binding on your conscience, everything God requires of you is in this book, the Bible. You don't need to worry about someone getting a message from a lizard out in the desert and, and, and having another testament of Jesus Christ that somehow the game changes and now you've got to listen to that. The word was delivered once for all. Jude said this. It, it's the, the faith delivered once for all. God spoke, moved those who wrote. It came into being and the canon, the collection of scripture is closed. Nothing else is getting added. Get that straight. You got to get that really straight in your mind so you don't get deceived by weird ideas and deceptive total sufficiency. Go back to Psalm 19 with me. I love Psalm 19. It begins with general revelation, how you know that God exists through creation. But then it goes to special revelation, how the word and, and, and the sufficiency of the word is just spelled out so 
beautifully in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10. All these names for the word of God, the, it starts with the law of the Lord, and the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. You've got the law, the testimony, the precepts, the, the fear, the commandment, the rules. This is God's word, different names for God's word. And what does it do? It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. You read the word and you re your heart rejoices. It endures forever. It is righteous altogether. And, and it says that it's more to be desired than gold, much fine gold. The things that people kill for, it's much to be desired more than that. And it's sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It's sweet to your soul. And it's powerful. It does all of these things. The psalmist says it does. It's the Holy Spirit of the psalmist writes. God spoke. It's powerful. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, I, I, I realize it's a verse that I end up quoting a lot. He says, I, I'm, I'm really glad that when you received the word of God, you took it for what it really is, the word of God, not the word of man. It's the word of God that does its work in you who believe. It's powerful. In Russia, during the Stalin era, you know, the Marxist government said the Bible was full of legends and myths and old wives' tales. That's what they told the people. They even established an anti-Bible museum in Moscow to try and convince the people. And the reason they did all of this is because the authorities were so desperately afraid that people would actually pick up their Bibles, read them, and believe them. They put them in prison and labor camps for doing so. Why? Because they knew this book had the power to change lives. Someone just told me after first hour that, uh, they, um, that a nun told them when they were younger, don't try to read the Bible. Don't read it. You won't understand it. The Bible is powerful. Now, there are problems that, that Sola Scriptura solves. I'll name a few that would touch us in our lives. The first problem it solves is not enough Scripture in your life. Uh, where you're malnutritioned because you just, you just don't take the word in. It's maybe one, you come over on Sunday and you hear it and you go, well, I got enough for the week, you know. Uh, there's a pastor recently I'm glad I don't remember his name because I'd probably be tempted to say it, uh, who called Bible study ridiculous. You put that up against Psalm 119 and you think, what is this person thinking, right? Here was the, the title, the, ridic the Ridiculous Emphasis Christians Place on the Bible. I quote, the modern day church places a ridiculous amount of emphasis on studying the Bible. It's obvious from historical observation alone, this person knows nothing of history, that one can be a sold-out, fully devout, willing-to-die-a-martyr's-death follower of Jesus and spend next to no time practicing the spiritual discipline of Bible study. Now, if his point was to say, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers as well, which would have been a good point to make, he sadly missed the mark. Christians who can go without the word are naive at best. At worst, they're arrogant people who think they need no captain, no instructions, no oversight. 
Of course, we need to not just be hearing the word, but doing the word, living the word. This is not a closed-loop Bible study for me and me alone. True believers study the Bible and live the Bible. So there's that problem of not enough scripture and the malnutritioned Christian. There's also twisted scripture and the deceived Christian, and they've, they've allowed things to come in and believe things that aren't in the Bible, but they haven't tested it, and so they're deceived, and they don't know they're deceived. But I think probably the biggest problem is scripture with additives. Okay, you know, we're learning all the time, like don't, don't, don't eat stuff with red dye number 40 and things like that, right? Um, don't, don't eat food with additives and stuff. They make you grow weird appendages or whatever. Um, but scripture with additives is where the, 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 the body of Christ gets poisoned. Minds get poisoned. Minds get deceived even worse. The biggest problem, scripture plus. This is, what, this is what sola scriptura was battling. The Catholic Church said, so on an equal plane is scripture and the Pope and traditions of the church. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. You can rest assured that uh, all 66 books of the Bible, as God has uh, preserved them, is the real word of God. And what we're called to do is hold fast to the word of life. We're called to not be deceived. We're called to hold forth the word of life to others and not be deceiving others. And the solution, you can give me the solution right now. It's what I'm preaching today. Sola Scriptura. That's the solution. Scripture is the, the, the perfect and only standard of spiritual truth, revealing infallibly all that we must believe to be saved and all that we must do in order to glorify God. That, no more, no less, is what sola scriptura means. Now, there are implications upon our lives. How we must live in light of Scripture's supremacy and sufficiency. So since I have two points today, I'll give you two application points. So first, you need to treasure and obey the word. By the way, the two points I'm giving you, these are not brain surgery, okay? The idea, though, is if you, if you say, you know, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, we even believe it's supreme and sufficient, and you walk out the door and you don't live it, it makes no effect into your life. Treasure and obey the word. Scripture is supreme. Obey it. Treasure it. There's no higher authority. It's God's final, complete, binding word. You obey it. See, sola scriptura is, a, is an issue of submission. If it is really supreme and really sufficient, we're slaves. And if God speaks in scripture, we have no freedom to go away from what it says. We're to obey God's word above all else. Acts 5.29, Peter and the apostles said this, we must obey God rather than man. Proverbs 13.13, 13, whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. So no matter what you believe about God and life, if the Bible says different, you must believe what it says. Submit yourself fully to it. I want us all to be radically surrendered to God and his word. This is the history of this church. This is, we're, we're going, by the way, this, you know, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Well, we got the 50th anniversary of Grace Church of Orange. From day one, it's been this way, and it will continue by the grace of God. 
We need to submit ourselves fully to the word of God. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You're going to make wise macro decisions, micro decisions, excuse me, on the macro truths of the word of God. Some of it gets really, really simple. Forgive your brother. Love your brother. Obey Jesus. Things like that. You need to spend time daily in the word of God. Psalm 1 tells us that. Blessed is the man who walks not after the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. You want to receive uh, sound teaching regularly. The whole Bible must be taught and preached in the church. And sermons are supposed to be expositions of the Bible and its teachings, not the preacher's opinions, not the ideas of the age. Pastors and elders are called to do what Titus 1.9 says. Hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that, that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. You are to not add or take away from God's word. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Deuteronomy 12.32, everything I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. 1 Corinthians 4.6 says, don't go beyond what, what is written. And you know what the curses are for those who add to the Bible? Look at Revelation 22. You're also, if you're going to treasure the word of God, you're going to give it to others. Matthew 28, the, the great, the, uh, the, the, what's it called again? The Great Commission. You are awake. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations. And then he says, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. You got to treasure and obey the word. And then what happens is that those who reject scripture's supremacy do so because they want to live any way they want to live. In 1988, Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong said without shame, and I quote, I stand ready to reject the Bible in favor of something that is more human, more humane, more life-giving, and dare I say, more godlike. Because in 1988, he was a proponent of, 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 of accepting all the unbiblical lifestyles that are now being pushed upon us today. So he is, is no longer a fringe, extreme opinion. It's, it's mainstream now. What church history is it, it's family history for christians remember slides <laughs> slideshows anyway um family history for christians this is not a boring thing that ivory tower theologians like it's our family history where we see that people were willing to die in order to get the gospel and god's word out the bible has floated down to us on the blood of martyrs you shame the memory of apostles when you act as though you, they, what they wrote isn't good enough. They were crucified upside down, hanged, beaten, stoned for what they wrote, and then what they preached. Jude, again, calls it the faith once for all delivered. Timothy says, guard the good deposit, the gospel. So treasure and obey the word of God. Secondly, trust and depend on the word of God. If scripture is sufficient, you have to trust it. It's sufficient. It's sufficient for salvation. 1 Peter 1, 23, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. John 8, 31 and 32, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. When you abide in the word. 
John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The good news is that Jesus took our sin on himself in our place so that those who believe would, would be given his righteousness, right standing with God, and the power to obey him. It is sufficient for sanctification. God's work does its work in those who believe. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, I already mentioned that one. The Bible is sufficient for guidance. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It is sufficient when you are tempted. Matthew 4, Jesus responded to temptation with scripture. It is written. It is sufficient if you want to glorify God. If you say, I just want to glorify God. Well, John 15, 7 and 8, Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified. That you bear much fruit and so prove to me my disciples. Scripture is sufficient for life change. You want your life to change? Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You've got to drench yourself in Scripture when you're prepping for that stressful meeting. You've got to drench yourself in Scripture when you're counseling your kids or your grandkids. A lot of parents and grandparents give their kids and grandkids self-help slogans instead of the word of God. Uh, I, I know, I've heard it. You, people have been told, you just have to believe in yourself. You give them Jesus in the gospel. You test everything by the word of God. Don't believe every spirit, 1 John 4, 1. Test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things. Hold fast to what is good. You watch out for anything contrary to the word of God. Galatians 1.8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Romans 16.17, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. Reagan was right. Trust with verification. Trusting the word, uh, by the way, means rejecting scripture plus. Scripture plus anything else that you think is on an equal plane with scripture. The Catholic Church puts scripture and tradition and the Pope on the same level. What do we do today? We put scripture and other things on the same level. Maybe it's our favorite Christian preacher or author or our tradition or just some idea we've got. And by the way, if I preach sola scriptura and don't bring this up, I, I sidestep a huge elephant already in the room for many Christians, something very prevalent in evangelical Christianity that we, you know, we want to be biblically faithful, right? So there's, a, there's, there's an issue that's big enough for many Christians that I'm going to take next week and do a sola scriptura part two on hearing God's voice. What does it mean to hear God's voice? What does the Bible say should be our practice? How does God lead and guide his people how does he do it? As I close, I will just say this. We must take sola scriptura very, very seriously. It should affect everything about who we are as a church and who we are as individual Christians. How we conduct our lives, how, how our heart before God operates, how we think and, and, and speak, how we address our family, how we live with our family, how we... Uh, interact as a church we have one basic standard and it's according to the word we are going to follow what it says 
if it's in the Bible, and, and what else are we going to do? What else are we going to do? I love what Jesus' disciples said when he said, are you going to leave too? And he was like, where else can we go? You have words of eternal life. As a new believer, I was awestruck again by the fact that Jesus is God and the Bible is true. Make it your driving passion of life to know God through the word of God, trusting the spirit of God moment by moment. Cultivate it as your life's habit that would affect every decision. Soak in it so that you would take on its full flavor, that your personality would even be flavored by the Bible, that you could be cut anywhere and believe Bible. Um, the, the, the vision would be that the home and the school and the marketplace and the public square would be so affected by people who are drenched in Scripture, spirit and dwelt, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, gospel-preaching people. And I think the result would be that our hearts are going to be less restless, our minds less distracted, our family less neglected, our work less consuming, because our hearts rest in Christ, and our mindset is, I want to please God. The medieval church put final authority in matters of faith and practice in the hands of the Pope. He alone had power to authoritatively interpret scripture, tradition, the church fathers, and the church councils. He had the power to formulate new doctrines. Luther said, no, no, decisive authority is in God's hands. It's in scripture in all matters of faith and practice. In, in July of 1519, Luther said to John Eck, a simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope or council without it. So in October 1520, he was condemned. They demanded that he recant what he had said and written in 60 days, within 60 days. And his response was pretty much burn the letters that came his way because they condemned Christ. The Roman emperor, Charles V, agreed with the church that Luther should be tried at the upcoming assembly of the German nations at Worms on April, in April of 1521. Here's what happened quickly. April 20th, 1521. The archbishop demands that he recount. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors they contain? And Luther says, can I have 24 hours to think about it? Next day, April 21st, 1521, the trial comes to a dramatic close. Luther knows his life depends on his answer. And here's what he said. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I, can do, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Well, our hearts are captive to the word of God. Our consciences are bound by the word of God. We believe that the word of God is the infallible rule of faith and practice, the only firm ground upon which we can live and operate and upon which believers in the church can stand. Scripture alone, supreme and sufficient. Right, let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have given us truth that we need. Thank you that it is supreme, that it is overall. Thank you that it's sufficient, that it's all we need. And Lord, we just bow before you in dependence, asking you to be glorified in and through us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.